pushing buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny Special Report. Today I'm going to chat with Tanner McKinley about the events in Afghanistan this week. This show is brought to you by Smith & Wesson, Primary Arms, Caldwell, IWI, GSM Outdoors, and Manicore Arms. I'm your host, Ava Flannell. Tanner, welcome back to the U.S. Good to be here. <laughs> I can't even imagine. You just got back today. Well, I actually just got back a couple days ago. On the 16th is when my flight got into the U.S. Okay, two days ago, technically. Although I think the show's going to come out tomorrow. With everything going on in Afghanistan this week, I wanted to bring you on the show to discuss some of the things that you've seen. It's crazy because I did pick up a newspaper today just because I have to pack something, and I did see Afghanistan on the front of the newspaper. But just scrolling through Facebook news, I only saw one article that was talking about Afghanistan. And it's just crazy to me that the media isn't talking more about this. Really, the only thing that I've seen are just video clippings from people that they took with their cell phones. But for the most part, there isn't a lot of coverage from the media. And it's really disturbing. Wanted to have you on the show to discuss that. Before we get into that, though, what brought you to Afghanistan? Sure. So this is my second rotation out of there. I was a dog handler in the Air Force. And then the opportunity presented itself to work overseas and uh, something I always wanted to do and a mission I wanted to be a part of. Didn't get the opportunity while I was in the Air Force, so I jumped on it as a contractor. Same thing as being an explosive detection dog handler. Mm -hmm. This is my, like I said, my second rotation. I've been out there since April and it's definitely been a, just how everything has unfolded is just, it, it really blows my mind, honestly, to think that a country with the most resources has to, I mean, when you look at all the preparedness, all the people that we have and all the experience that we have, even with situations like this, and it comes down to the last day where we have to just ship everyone out of there hastily. And we don't get in a lot of the local nationals that worked with us very closely over 20 years that were huge assets and instrumental in working in Afghanistan. So, you know, that's why I went over there is I wanted to go do that mission. And, you know, it just, the way it all unfolded is just, it blows my mind, honestly. Let's talk about just the couple of days that led up to everything that happened. And I don't have a ton of knowledge on it, just as much as I'm able to read or see other people post. But as you're saying, you guys had to leave. It doesn't seem like you were given much notice. What happened the few days leading up to all of this? Sure. So I was originally due to leave the 25th of August, this regular rotation. I was coming towards the end of my into my tour. And and how long were you there for? Since April 1st. So about five months. Okay. So I would say it was the 13th, I believe. We got a notification. And this is when, actually, no, it was, the, it was like the 12th, I think, because the 10th, a new, new rotation came in, new guys came in, and uh, other guys left, just how it normally is. And then, so we just got people there to relieve other guys. And like the 12th or the 13th, I believe, you know, we're sitting there and we're about to go to work. And we usually have like a, a briefing where we all kind of go over everything. And there was just like this uncertainty. There was nothing that fell on. It was just kind of very vague. And it was like, Hey, you know, we might need to be ready to go. And it was like, 
what do you mean go? And then it was just like, we need to be ready to leave at a moment's notice. And this is our new flights. And, you know, they started bumping everything up and we were like, okay, you know, did they say why? No, they, they really didn't say why. I mean, we all kind of like knew like the Intel, we knew that the Taliban was closing in. They were about a hundred miles out at this time. The next day comes and that's when they're like, all right, everyone has a flight. Like everyone has a flight. This is when it's going to happen. We're going to do this in stages. And that was like the 14th or that was the 13th. Right. And then the 14th comes on. They're like, no, we need to get everyone out immediately. Taliban is within 20 miles. It's obvious that they're not being stopped in any way, shape or form. And control is completely lost. So within 72 hours, Kabul had basically fell, honestly. So we all are like, okay, well, we're all going to go pack. And, you know, when things like this happen and in general, if anything happens, communication is really vague. Yeah. You know, it's really vague. It's not very clear. And luckily, like as a whole, our teams, we had a lot of experience. A lot of guys had, some guys had had the experience of being already evac'd from another embassy in Iraq. So they definitely led a huge hand on what we kind of needed to do to get ready. I mean, we, we were at the point where we were stripping vehicles and getting ready to, as an option of ground transport, of just convoying out because we didn't know if we were going to be able to get helicoptered out of the embassy to the airport because the way it's set up is the embassy is a couple miles away from the airport, from Alvarado. So mm-hmm. what'll happen is, is you fly in on a helicopter 99% of the time. And, you know, we knew that there was so many more Americans left on the ground. And we didn't know whether or not we were going to be kind of staying and securing that kind of was being figured out as a security contractor. It's kind of, it's kind of vague. You know, they had said that they were bringing in 3000 troops and I'll tell you, I saw less than 300. I don't know where the 2,700 other were or whatever numbers they were throwing out. You know, it's hard because you don't really see a lot what's going on in the news because you're focusing on the situation on the ground. Mm -hmm. And, but I did see a couple things that they were like, oh, he's sending 3,000 troops out and we didn't see them. So, and essentially the troops were to, it doesn't really make sense to send people into the country when you guys are trying to get people out of it. I mean, it, it depends on, see, the issue was, is that we pulled out of, we closed up Alvarado. That was our, our biggest focal point in Afghanistan. That was a major defense. That was our shield pretty much. That's what protected all the diplomats, the diplomatic areas. And that was, in my opinion, the only thing keeping the Taliban from pushing into the city mm-hmm. because they knew that we had that air base and that we had so many resources and troops there that we could spin up a mission and react very quickly. But when you take that away, the closest that we have, I believe, is Kuwait. So the response time and the support goes down to nothing. So leaving your diplomatic Americans there, yeah, no shield, no defense. It's kind of like, you know, you're leaving us out to try mm-hmm. because we have no support. If something did happen, like what it did. And I believe that we needed those troops because I can tell you kind of jumping ahead a little bit at the airport, we didn't have airport security. So there was actual Taliban fighters on the flight line when we were trying to get troops and Americans and contractors out of off the ground, this Mm -hmm. is before the whole airport was overrun. And those are the pictures that you saw of people hanging onto airplanes to try and get away from their situation. And, you know, I don't know each one of their occupations, but I could definitely say that some of them probably worked with us and knew that or thought that we would help them. Yeah. 
And you were stripping vehicles prepared to take off in those, but helicopters did come and get you guys? Yes. So the night of the 15th, we had our scheduled flight was to go out on the 16th or on the 15th, right? So the night of the 14th, at like almost like midnight, 2300, we rolled out in the helicopter. So the helicopters came, they landed on the embassy, and then we got most of, I would say a third of the dog teams out of there because it was very mixed. It wasn't like a whole helicopter or like seven helicopters of dog teams. Mm -hmm. It was, there was other militaries that were getting out of there, allied forces. And then there was a bunch of Americans and State Department employees that were working at the embassy that were getting out. So it was kind of mixed up. This might be kind of a stupid question, but did you guys take the dogs with you? Of course. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I would have felt bad if you didn't. Sure. I mean, it's 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 sad you have to ask the question, but it's definitely something because I mean we uh, we did leave dogs in Vietnam, so that that was a thing that Mm -hmm. happened. Yeah. So it's a reality, but I I can tell you, all the contractors, there's no way we would have left without the dogs. There was Mm -hmm. no way we would ever let that happen. So yeah, I was completely prepared, and I think everyone else was that if it did come down to that, that we wouldn't leave without the dogs and we'd figure it out. So mm-hmm. whether or not they're going to get the dogs out of there, we'll, we'll figure it out ourselves, but we're not going to leave them behind. Yeah. When you guys, because you had to leave so quickly, did you guys leave a lot of supplies there? Sure. So the day, like the 14th, right? When we were like, okay, we're leaving tomorrow or getting a lot of the teams out in 48 hours was the goal. Mm-hmm. We burned, I, I can't even tell you how, how many, how much stuff. I mean, we burned as the first thing to go is like obviously the classified material and things like that. Um, as far as vehicles, I'm pretty sure we probably took the, the keys or disabled. I wasn't there for, for that portion of it, but every piece of equipment, it's procedure to disable it before we leave. Mm-hmm. So any kind of weapons, you know, I'd, I'd really be interested to see, you know, you see a lot of photos of, you know, guns and, and rooms being, just rooms of guns. And uh, I, I can say that we disabled our weapons, so they wouldn't be usable Okay, without yeah. some serious rework of the parts. Because I know that that's what a lot of people are like, wow, they just left so quickly that they basically just armed the Taliban. They equipped them with the same technology that we have. Sure. The biggest issue is, in, in my opinion, is, is everything that we gave to the Afghan National Army. And when the Taliban would fight them and then a would just completely either give up or be overrun, that's the time that they would leave those and not have the time. So either they would capture them and, and kill them and take their weapons and things like that. So that's why you're seeing, you know, you see the Taliban in the, in the capital and you see them with updated AR-15s with ACOGs and things like that. That's mm-hmm. where you're seeing that. Okay. So that's, that's that actual functional equipment. And then as far as other countries, that's kind of the other thing is that some of them did leave, like you'd see like a a helicopter. I'd be really interested to see if they ran. I don't know. It's it's pretty procedure to destroy that kind of things, but it depends on what how it was taken. Mm-hmm. If it was taken by a allied country, it's probably disabled. Mm-hmm. And if it's taken by the Afghan National Army, there's a good chance that that is functioning. Yeah. Then let's talk about the army for a second. I heard that you guys equipped the army to defend themselves and then the minute the Taliban showed up, they just surrendered their guns and just kind of gave up pretty easily. Definitely. It was, it's something that's really hard to, to wrap my mind around personally, just being like, kind of just built as a, as an American, yeah. you know, our mindset is, is really different, but mm-hmm. 
are good fighters out there that were a part of the Afghan National Army. And there was some other units that were really well trained. And so they would they would win a lot. You know, they would fight a lot with the Taliban and they would win um, a lot of these battles that were happening. But there just wasn't enough of them that were willing to go all the way with it in my opinion, and, and really fight, fight down to it. Cause in, in my opinion, how we view is as Americans is we either die there or we win. Yeah. Like there's no like surrendering mm-hmm. in my opinion. Cause. Oh no, absolutely um, not. If you do surrender, it was obvious that what they did, I mean, they would just kill you anyways. Exactly. So yeah. There's no option for that. Yeah. Yeah. I know I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around it too. And now figure it's been two decades now that we've started this war. And I'm curious to hear, what are your thoughts on this? Because it kind of seems like, wow, we're 20 years in, and it does kind of seem like, how are we supposed to win a war where most of the people in this country aren't even willing to fight for their country? At this point, we are risking people's lives by being there when it just seems like it's a never-ending battle. Sure. I mean, it's definitely when the war started, you know, when the towers were hit, I was six years old. And 20 years later at 26 now, I saw the war end with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. So when you see a war that has gone on for that long, but when you look at the grand scheme of things, this country and this area, they have been at war over religion for since the beginning of time, it seems like. I mean, it makes 20 years look very minuscule. So when it comes down to being able to train an army, I mean, look at what we can do with our boot camps as, as the U.S. military, right? So we take young men and women that are 18, and then we make them into war fighters into about two or three years. So how many generations has that been? You know, obviously 20 years, that's a lot of generations of, of war fighters that should have been there willing to fight. Mm-hmm. So what I think about the whole war is, is that, you know, I don't think that it was our goal to ever completely change who they were as, as the entire people. I mean, that's, that's, through thousands of years of, of culture, that's who they are at this point. So it takes time much longer than 20 years to, to try and fix that. I think that our goal when we came in was to kill terrorists, in my opinion. Yeah. So a lot of people are said, why did we even go? Well, that's because our homeland was attacked mm-hmm. and we weren't going to let that happen. So we came in and we held the people responsible and, and killed them and killed a lot of terrorists. So I, th- I think that is a win in my book. And then obviously, I don't think that it always has to be the U.S. that has to go across the world and and fight everyone's wars for them. There's plenty of other allied forces that we have that believe in in these same rights that that we believe in, that that believe in women's rights, that don't believe in child sex slavery and all these things. So I think that there's options that we could have looked at where somebody else could have rotated. And, you know, we had another country that, that took the lead on it and help the Afghan National Army mm-hmm. and fight the Taliban. So I don't think it always has to be the U.S. And that's the thing. Even when we decided we were going to go ahead and do a tactical retreat and, and move out of the area, we still intended on sending money and resources there. Yeah. So it's something that we would have continued to fund and probably still will in some fashion moving forward. But now now the difference is, is girls can't go to school anymore. Mm-hmm. I literally just saw a report today that they can't go to school anymore. And now these children have a fear of getting their hands cut off or stealing an apple. I mean, I mean, everything that you look at and they're very public about, I mean, the Taliban's all over talking about how they decided that they want to run the country and 
their laws that they're implementing are very open about it. So I see a lot of people that are against the war, but it, there's not, you can't fix everything with a social media post. Mm-hmm. You can't fix everything with a news article. Some things have to be done in a more violent manner to protect people. Yeah. And that's not something that's going to go away. We live in our own little world in America. And if you haven't visited these other countries, your perspective is, is, is kind of, I wouldn't really say flawed. It's just, you don't have a good grasp of what's going on in mm-hmm. these countries and it can't be done with just talking. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely understand that because one of the things that really bothers me is in all these videos during the evacuation at the airport, it seems like it's predominantly men. Even as the flights are taken off, it's mostly men. Where are the women and children? And you know very well that they probably just deserted them. It's everyone for themselves. But me being such a strong female, it's so hard to support a country that looks at women as not even humans. They treat them like, I'd believe that they probably treat animals better than most women. But on the other hand, you visiting and you being there, and I'm sure that you made friends with people that are in that country, and and you can't just generalize them as a whole. It's kind of like people like Black Lives Matter and all the protests that arise from that and people saying that police officers are horrible. Yeah, there's bad people in every industry, but it's not the entire police force is bad. Of course. Here I am kind of looking at as Afghanistan, any of those countries, the way they think, I can't stand it. And it's hard to want to support a country that treats women like that and children. But I would imagine that your perspective kind of changes and that not everyone is like that there. Yeah, definitely not. We've definitely shown that side of of democracy and that women's rights and bringing women into school to get educated and things like that and treating them as as equals. And I think that a lot of the people saw that as as a huge positive in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think you look at, I kind of go to like extremism of what I think of right. We can we can all relate to like the left and the right of the U.S. Right, very polarizing difference, Mm -hmm. but. I would say the extreme right and the extreme left are actually a pretty small percentage. And the majority kind of sit in the middle and they kind of agree with certain policies of another and they agree with certain policies of the left or the right. It doesn't matter. It's just kind of whatever they think is best. Mm -hmm. And then you have these so absolute extremes. And then that's what I kind of think about the Taliban is they're extremely one way. And then you have the Afghan national army that are, you know, extreme on that, on that right hand side that are like polarizing different views. And then you have the people that are wedged in between it. And it's just much more violent than it is looking at the situation that we have in the United States. Yeah. So it's tough, but it's hard to wrap your head around it. And I I completely agree with you. Mm -hmm. The fact of, you know, it's hard to, it would be hard to support a country that, that did only think that way. And I try to act and see if I, you know, if I had a daughter, how would I want her to be treated? Mm -hmm. How would I want my mom to be treated in that country? So yeah, that's what I think about. Let's go back to, you know, you're at the airport. What was the scene like there? Well, we got in really early in the the morning, like I had said. So we had left the 14th, the night of the 14th, about 2300, got in very quickly. It's a 10 minute helicopter ride. So we got there by midnight. We settle in, you know, we already have canine teams that work there. So they greeted us and it was definitely like a, it's like a relief because you're at the airport and you know, that's where you need to be to get out. Yeah. But also, you know, two thirds of your team are sitting back at the embassy that are relatively 
unprotected. And I mean, they're protected because as a, as an embassy, as our guys, we had it handled. We knew that if anything happened, that we would take care of it. We weren't relying on anyone else, you know, whether it be the army or, or anyone else, the U S army or the Afghan national army to help us. Mm -hmm. If need be, we were prepared to, to do whatever we needed to do to get out of there. But I still wanted them all in all out kind of a thing where I wanted those teams to be with us because we're definitely stronger together. And the strong, the more numbers that we have together is a lot better. If we needed to get in some vehicles at the airport and go drive to go help them in some way, then that would be, that would be nuts. That would just be really difficult to be able to do. And it, your risk goes up very heavily having to drive through a Taliban infested town that are just looking to be violent because now that they they're on that road to claiming their country again. So they are, you know, they're bolstered in their numbers and they're just running through the city. And now they're hunting people that had worked with Americans. And when you talked about, you're sure that I made friends, there was one guy in specific that, you know, he spoke four different languages and he worked at the dining facility there at the embassy. And I asked him, cause this was like the 14th. And I was like, Hey man, how's it going? And he was like, it's, it's going, I'm really trying to get my visa approved. And I was like, how long have you been? He's like, I've been trying to get approved for like a really long time. And I just don't, I don't think it's going to happen in time. And right now they're looking for people that have worked with the Americans. So they're hunting for them and wow. they're basically creating a list and, and trying to, to hunt them down. So that just made me feel just terrible. I know, you know that, that somebody that is so, be such a huge asset as, as an American yeah. that deserves to be an American mm -hmm. and has helped us and, and fought with us. Right. And that he can't get his visa approved. Yeah. I mean, what, what are we doing behind these sidelines? That's so crazy. So, okay. Say you can't get his visa approved for whatever reason. Why aren't we relocating these people somewhere? There's some country that we have allied forces that we can move them to, or we can move them to a, a portion in the United States. And, yeah. and work on their visas there until they until they get approved. But let's get them to safety first, mm -hmm. and let's worry about paperwork later because yeah. they're going to be dead by the time that you process their freaking visa, yeah. which is unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely. For the video footage that I saw, where there were people, they were getting them on planes. Was it America that was doing that, and who decided who got on these planes? So, to my knowledge. There was, I, it sounds like there was little to no organization on that. So it's hard for me to be definitive and be like, oh, a hundred percent. I can yeah. tell you with strong confidence that I think that they were all U.S. planes. I don't think that there was any other planes because the commercial error had already been kind of, had been stopped in that area. They weren't going to fly into that airport with Taliban having this control because they have surface to air missiles. So mm -hmm. which could target airplanes and things like that. So that would definitely be a huge risk. So commercial wouldn't fly in there. So that should have been all mill air. And to my knowledge, the only, only planes that were left were U S planes. Now, as far as facilitating who decided to get on, I'm pretty sure that the pilots made the decision that they were going to get to be as many as they could out mm -hmm. of there. And they packed them in to try and help what they could, but those planes can only hold so many. I mean, you saw those photos and they're, they're maxed out. And there's no excuse that it should have ended like that. No. Yeah. I mean, I have Intel reports and we've been getting Intel. You know, like I said, I've been there since April. Since April, May, we've been getting Intel reports that the Taliban are winning, that they are 
constantly taking districts. So we, and if I'm getting this Intel and I'm, I'm just a regular guy on the ground, then everyone to the, to the top has gotten this information. So that failure to act and, and to get things done. And then on top of that, to pull away Bagram, leaving the entire city defenseless is honestly the most ignorant strategic decision I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And we could have easily been starting this process since, since June. Yeah. Or even sooner, whatever it took to however long it took. Yeah. And we shouldn't be begging the Taliban to spare our embassy. Yeah. That should never, ever happen because yeah. they don't, those kind of people don't respect that. Oh no, not at all. They, they have to know that if you touch a single American, we will turn you into glass. Like that's the kind of reaction that we need. That's the kind of strength, peace through strength, because it doesn't work peace through asking. That's mm-hmm. never worked mm-hmm. in war. So there you go. Yeah, you're right. I don't understand why all of a sudden it was just, oh, wow, the Taliban, they're not too far off. And how is it that just now everyone's notified? There definitely could have been a lot more planning and we could have gotten a lot of people out of there. I saw one guy, I think he's a journalist and the planes took off. My wife, my 11 month old daughter, we're stuck here in Afghanistan and there's no way out. Nothing like knowing because you're an American, you're probably going to die. Depending on your skill set, it's definitely, I mean, even if you do have a, a really strong skill set. It's just, it's, I feel like it wouldn't even be a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Maybe you can survive for a little bit. But I think ultimately, I don't know, I feel like this is probably the end of Afghanistan. I don't think that there's any coming back from all of this. I don't see it either. In my opinion, I don't think that we'll be coming back. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's not over yet. We still have people on the ground. We still can provide options. It's not, in my opinion, it's never too late. It's never too late to try. Yeah. It's never too late to make an attempt. Yeah, they've had a complete failure right now, right? I mean, how many embassies need to get attacked and evacuated before we get good at this. Yeah. I mean, President Joe Biden said that this would never happen. And it's happened. Mm -hmm. He never said that there would be a situation where people would be getting helicoptered off of rooftops. Yeah. So whoever is in charge, whoever's making these decisions are not doing their job, in my opinion. If any single person, any one of us, right, went to work and we put other people's lives in danger and didn't do our job, we would be fired. We would be held accountable. Mm -hmm. So where's the accountability for this? Why aren't we setting up evacuation points that are around Afghanistan, right? So say that, okay, they have Afghanistan, right? But telling the people that are in these cities that, hey, whoever's left, you need to try to make it to these points. Give them an option. Give them, give them some kind of path that we can help help them. Yeah. And we, we could easily put some support there and get some evac points out and say, hey, you need to get here as soon as possible. We're trying to make this happen. Contact someone to let them know what we're doing or where to go. And then those people can facilitate that communication between telling these Americans and people that were uh, in their visa processing that they have a place to go because right now they're stranded. And you're right. The longer that they stay there, the more danger that they become in. And Mm -hmm. that's when we really look at losing just more people out of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I can't help but thinking any of the women or children that are left behind, they're obviously going to become sex slaves to the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Even the children, that's something that a lot of people don't realize, but even these children, really young children are going to become sex slaves Definitely. and killed. I just remember when the war first started, I remember somebody saying that this is like a war like nothing else that they've ever fought because 
we're fighting against people that don't care if they die. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, when we fought with other countries, I'd like to think that human beings, we all might have different cultures, but ultimately, we all want to live. We all want the bare necessities, things like that, that would make us human. But it's weird because these people, they think that, hey, if they die fighting for their country, that they're going to be offered a really great afterlife. And exactly. we're fighting a type that we've never fought before. They're definitely conditioned to believe that, you know, they get all this, this massive, this great life after. And that's something that I definitely think that that drives a lot of them to do these insane things of human born IEDs and mm-hmm. human born IEDs blowing themselves up because they believe that. And that's the thing that they're, it, it starts because, and, and like people are like, they're blown away. Like, how could you ever get somebody to do that? Well, if you're conditioned as a kid. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. You, yeah. you are conditioned to do those same things. They are. They talk to them. They put them in these camps, and they're putting it down their throat constantly, twenty four seven, and it brings them into into that. So they're creating this at, at such a young age. So those twenty years, I mean, that we shut a, a really bright light into a very very terrible area of mm-hmm. the world, and a lot of that stopped. So it started. It, it lost a lot of its momentum of. You know, these kids that were in in these camps to be Taliban fighters. Mm-hmm. My biggest fear now is, okay, Taliban is going to continue to build because ultimately people in Afghanistan, even if they didn't want to choose a side, if they didn't agree with Taliban at this point, in order for them to survive, they're going to have to become one with them. And yeah. now I could just see this whole thing expanding. And now Afghanistan's just, it's just one big terrorist country. And then it spreads. And I see this definitely becoming a huge issue in the near future. And initially, we fought them because we were attacked on September 11th. But I guess my biggest fear is also the future. Now what's to come? Now that they're building their forces and getting stronger and getting more people on their side. And it's one of those things where, honestly, I don't really know what could have been done to prevent this. We've already been in a 20-year war with them. And they were still able to gain momentum. And it's one of those things where, is there ever going to be an end in sight? Sure. I mean, I mean, so they were, uh, in my opinion, I think they were just buying their time. Like they had already, they had already lost, in, in my opinion. It doesn't mean that they were going to give up. It just means that they were going to go hide away in the mountains mm-hmm. wait until the, until the U.S. decided that they were going to leave. Because that's why, so we didn't have any really... Uh, much attacks. We had a couple of rocket attacks and things like that, but none of none, nothing was a direct, like complex attack towards the U.S. And it was mm-hmm. my opinion that there was some kind of agreement made. That's and and maybe it's just that the Taliban think that if we are already said that we're going to leave Afghanistan, don't provoke us because then that would keep us there. Yeah. So that's what my thought process behind that is. I, I genuinely do think that even if they do build forces. I don't think that their end goal is to come attack the US. Now that's just my that's in my opinion. Because I do think that we did make an example of what will happen if you do. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they want to go back in the in the mountains and everything like that. I think that they're going to I don't think that they're going to make their relationship sour with the US because we did pull out. I mean that's the thing. Whichever way you look at it, us leaving was the only thing that was keeping the Taliban from taking over Afghanistan. Yeah. So we still decided to leave knowing farewell that the Taliban was going to take the country. Yeah. So that's true. I do think that they do know that 
right? Because we didn't stop them. I mean, we, we, we didn't. If we Now, that's the other side of the coin is if we decided, hey, we're not going to let that happen, and we put in 50,000 more troops, and we start redeploying and dropping down airstrikes and dropping bombs, that's going to make that relationship already sour with the Taliban. So mm-hmm. they could have you know, put together an attack that they were going to try and make on us after that or try to attack us here in the States. So it's a tricky situation. It really is. It's, it's so complex and there's a lot of different sides to it and everyone has a different optic, you mm-hmm. know? So I hadn't fought in Afghanistan before, you know, cause I was, I was a kid, you know, yeah. I was a kid when it happened when, when men, grown men were fighting there and sacrificing their lives in the name of protecting each other and killing terrorists. So, and then by the time I had got there, I mean, it was 2013 when I got into the Air Force. So we'd already kind of spun down a lot. It's tricky either way, because if we did try to stop them, then, you know, but that has to be something that, that we prepared for, you know, when we went in the first time. Yeah. Is that we said, hey, you know, there's could be some consequences of this, but we cannot let this happen. Mm-hmm. Either way, regardless, I think this whole thing could have been done a lot better. Oh, yeah. At this point, if I was President Biden, I hope he realizes how many people, good people, he just left behind. And sure, we could attempt to get him out, but I haven't read an article where they're not allowing a lot of aircrafts to land right now. So they're landing in other countries until they get the approval to land in Afghanistan. And it's not even really that easy to go back in and try to get some of these people out. Yeah, there's a lot of damage that's done. And I think it's really easy to kind of put it on, you know, the president. But there is a whole there's a whole group of people that we don't even that we don't even see because they're not on Mm -hmm. on TV. They don't do press conferences and things like that that make a lot of these decisions. Yeah. And but there's also generals that highly, highly recommended of not pulling out a bomb room. And I think that is where the first big mistake was at. Mm hmm. And it would have been much more intelligent to remove the diplomatic and the contractors and the, and the U.S. Department of State employees from the embassy and move them to Bagram and start filtering them out and really getting these visas done yeah. and, and working on that. And then as soon as their visas are done, then they can put them on a plane mm-hmm. and we can have the U.S. diplomats there and they're protected by a bunch of U.S. resources and able to get out. At a moment's notice, if we would have waited even just 24 more hours, right, or maybe even 12 more hours, we would have been pretty much, I think it would have been next to impossible to get those guys out of there. Mm-hmm. If, they, if they were going to, I mean, it would have been extremely dangerous to bring in those helos right on that embassy, right when the Taliban has already surrounded it. Because yeah. they have they have weapons and, and that they could, you know, attack those. I mean, they're going to be if they wanted to, they, they could have done something like that. So it's just insane about the way that it's happened and how many, how much experience we have with embassies. And there was a lot of just plain ignoring what's popping up right in front of your face. Mm -hmm. This is the consequences of it. Yeah. Let's talk about the Afghanistan president just disappearing. Sure. (laughs) What the, he just disappeared. So, Apparently, so the 14th, it should have been the 13th. Okay, so the 13th, he came in and he said, I'm done, get me out of here, and it's over. And everyone's like, okay, this is what's happening. All right, so it's going to be a peaceful transition between that. And then the 14th rolls around, and apparently he gets on the news, and he's like, I'm not leaving, 
we're going to sit here and fight. And then it's just totally like, we're like, what just happened? So then that's what kind of transit. I mean, Taliban had sent their, their government, their government officials to, to the embassy to already go ahead and facilitate that or between the palace. Right. And facilitate that changeover of peaceful transition or Mm -hmm. what what they call peaceful transition. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and then after that had happened on the 14th, then that's when it was like, all bets are off because the the Taliban, they were going to take the palace no matter what, like they were going to, they tried to do the, the, the peaceful thing at the beginning or peaceful, I'm putting air quotes around that. And then they didn't want to leave. So then they said, okay, we're going to force you out. So then that's kind of what led to that um, significant change of, of pace because it went from, this is bad. We need to leave, you know, just to be sure to, okay, no, we really need to leave like now because then everyone on that embassy is, is, is in danger now. Mm -hmm. What else have you experienced that you think other people should know that the media isn't covering? I think the biggest thing was the, the people that had worked with us for so long that our government abandoned them. Mm-hmm. I think there's no other, there's no other way to put that. Yeah. And I think that that is not a reflection upon what an American is. And when you work with America and, you know, somebody that'll fight with you, that's in my book considered family. Yeah. I you know? agree. And it doesn't matter if that, if that's blood or, or whatever it is, we fight together. Then to me, that's somebody that is just as much as American as I am. Right that are fighting for those values and fighting for those right things that, that need to be happening to, to have everyone on an equal playing field. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what the biggest thing is. I think, it, I think it's just, and then what's the Taliban do, right? As soon as they get in now, they want to take everyone's weapons, right? They want to take everyone's guns because they say they don't need them anymore. Yeah. Right? What were they saying? They were telling them that they're safe now. Yeah, exactly. Now, now they're safe now. Like we were the ones that were going in and killing civilians. Mm -hmm. And it's just that kind of mentality is something that we need to watch out for in, in the United States of, of, Hey, at the end of the day, we need to be protecting ourselves. We need to be training. We need to have the right tools, the right way of thinking. And we need to be working on that, coming up with our own plan to protect ourselves because mm-hmm. we can't rely on anyone to do that. I don't care if you're the biggest country in the world, you have the most money like us. It just shows that when it comes down to it, you have to protect yourself. Yeah, definitely. It's crazy because I've just been sitting here the last couple of days and I just feel exhausted. And why do I feel exhausted? And it's because my mind just keeps going. Once you see, and it's not like I've never experienced anything traumatic. I've actually experienced more trauma than probably most people out there. And maybe that's why it affects me more, but I just can't help but think of all the innocent people left behind and just knowing the people that they're going to be facing and knowing what kind of people the Taliban is. And you're not left with people that even have a bit of good in them that might think, okay, well, eh, let's just go easy on this person or we're not trying to hurt you. And you're right. Anybody who's helped America they're going to be the first people to get killed. And it is just so unfortunate that we left those people behind. And how can we as a country just do that to so many innocent people? It's just something that I just keep thinking about. And it really makes me sick. Yeah, it's, it's unacceptable for all the resources and all the experience that we have. It's, yeah. it's unacceptable as a country to have let that happen. And 
if we decide that we need to go in anywhere else, what is every country going to look at now? What are they going to look at? What are those people going to look at? So if we needed to go into another area of the world to, for whatever reason, those people are going to be 10 times more hesitant to work with us because look what happened. Yeah, exactly. We just left them, Mm -hmm. you know, or we didn't get all of them out. And and that was just completely not the way it should have been done. And it's not like, it's not just the thing that it shouldn't have been done like that. It's the thing that we had all of this time. We had every opportunity to start this process and to get it done and do it the right way. It's not like we had everything against us. Mm -hmm. It's not like this popped up out of nowhere and the Taliban just came up from the ground and was there. No, we knew about this for months, possibly even longer. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine it's definitely going to be hard to gain allies in other countries if we have to go there. Sure. But I know exactly how you feel when you say that you feel drained. Is And I just get so... I just got back, right? So I I have barely had any time to decompress. Mm -hmm. And coming back like this and just kind of feeling like we we just left people over there mm-hmm. and how everything unfolded. Yeah. Uh, I imagine you probably don't feel good at all. Like you almost have like survivor's guilt to an extent. I guess. I mean, I just, I don't really hold myself responsible because I, I feel like, you know, I did everything I could. Yeah. Right. And, but I do, I'm very disappointed and ashamed of the way that our supposed leaders in this country handled this, this foreign affair. Mm-hmm. So. That's the part that deeply disappoints me. I'm, I'm proud of the guys that are on the ground. You know, I'm proud of the guys that have been fighting in that country for much longer than I had spent there, and all the sacrifices that they made. I'm, I'm proud of of them. So, I feel like we did what we could, boots on the ground. But this is why politicians shouldn't fight wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Is there anything that you think that regular people like us can do to help in any way? Which I know is a hard question, because how do you reach somebody in another country when it's almost near impossible right now to do? As far as helping people in that country, I, I really don't have anything that I can say that's like, you know, I, I think maybe if we put more pressure, you know, if we decided that we were going to get loud. And this is why I wanted to come on and start having these podcasts and start talking and sharing this story immediately because, you know, I got home and, and my last thing I want to do right now is relax. I want to get my vest back on and I want to get back out there is what I want to do. Yeah. So I think that we should put pressure on our representatives and we need to say, hey, we cannot allow this. This does not represent us as America. Mm-hmm. 90% of us believe that this never should have happened. And this has nothing to do with left and right and politics or anything like that. This is not difference of opinion, a political opinion on political party. Mm -hmm. This is what's humanly right to do. Yeah. And I think it starts there of what we can do something right now, get out, start talking to our representatives, letting them know, you know, having, having rallies and, and getting, and getting this story out there and saying, okay, the news doesn't want to report on this. It doesn't matter. Cause this is the only thing we're going to be talking about. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing that we're going to be doing until this gets done in a decent way. And then past that, what I would suggest is that we need to get the right people elected. I feel like there's a lot of us that, and myself included, I stay away from politics because it's so draining. and It's such something that really just 
I, I just think it's really toxic and mm -hmm. it sometimes feels like there's nothing I can do. You mm -hmm. know, I like getting, I like being on the field. I like being on the ground. That way I'm actually, I know I'm doing something, you know, I see something wrong and I go fix it. I don't have to go write a paper or a letter to go start the process to make a change. I can go affect change with my own hands. Mm -hmm. So I think that we just need to start getting more involved with this. We need to start prioritizing people that and electing people that are going to make these right decisions. And we need to put those people in the right positions. So that way this never happens again. Mm -hmm. I think it's so tough though, when it comes to politics and electing people, because I feel like by the time you get up to where you're president nowadays, it's like, who can buy your opinion? It's all about money and it's on both sides. And as much as I want to be like, oh, the Republicans are amazing. Let's face it, all politicians right now, for the most part, I'd say 90% are scumbags. And they're not really voting or saying things or doing things for the right reasons. That's all money or power driven. Yeah. And we need to stop that. And I don't know exactly how. I'm not saying that corruption hasn't existed, but it's mm -hmm. definitely, it just continues to get worse over time. Yeah, now it's completely changed to... Yeah, I think it has gotten worse. And I think that there was still, I think there's always been corruption, but I do think that there was like an America first and like a mm -hmm. kind of how we represent ourselves as a country. That was still something that had to get done. Yeah. Well, they still had to do that. And that was still happening. And, you know, I think we need to get in there and I think we need to eliminate, you know, I think we need to start doing term limits. I think we need to start, cause that's the thing you develop a relationship with one guy, right? And they buy that one guy off and then he stays in. Now mm -hmm. they have that guy for 10 years or however long he's a politician. Exactly. So I think we need to start doing term limits. I think we need to completely eliminate lobbying. You know, your whole thing that you should be for campa campaigning shouldn't be to get all this money to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, the government needs to provide these elected officials or these people that are going to get nominated and they need to go through a different process that is paid for by the government and not by the people that are elected. That way, somebody that's nobody, right? That's, uh, you know, like works at, you know, an auto dealership or anything, right? They can go in and they don't have a ton of money and they can be a really good person and they can be the best option. Yeah. And then everyone can see that. Mm -hmm. So, and people, this up, and politicians shouldn't come in with their net worth of $250,000 and then, you know, five years in, why are they worth $10 million? Now? Oh, I know. That's extremely extremely suspicious yeah I mean, but nobody even nobody really questions that which is ridiculous yeah I mean, where's the responsibility for that yeah where's the where's the accountability for that kind of stuff i mean what is having to be a politician have to do with being extremely wealthy mm -hmm. yeah. i don't understand how those are related and the more wealthier you get the further you are away from 90 percent of the population mm -hmm. yeah i couldn't agree more for people who want to follow your journey, support you, are you on social media by chance? I am on social media, yes. What is your handle? It's Mac.1776. And this is on Instagram? Yep, just Instagram. And how do you spell that? So just M-A-C? M-A-C.1776. All right, I'm following you right now. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm imagining that you're probably going to be on quite a few other podcast. So if people want to listen to your other shows, I'm assuming that you're going to post it here on your Instagram. Probably. Yeah, no, okay. definitely. I think that I think that we need to, to share this as much as possible. And I think that, you know, we need to get this story out there. So I agree. Start being heard. 
All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure you're exhausted. I hope at some point in the next couple of days, you definitely get some rest and just continue fighting the good fight and spreading that story. And I think that educating as many people as possible is definitely key to making a difference. Definitely. Thanks for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Of course. Want to send feedback? Tell us about a company or anything else. Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact.